Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm so excited to be here today with Dr. Wendy Chung. She is the chair of the Department of Pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital and is on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. Wendy has had a remarkable impact on the field of genetics in her career. This includes decades of work understanding genetic drivers of neurodevelopment, which includes discovering, I think, more than 60 new genes and diseases in the process and counting. This also includes some very foundational work looking at the role that genetics has to play in in many other major diseases in the healthcare system, which we're going to cover today. And I was doing some prep for this and read this great Wall Street Journal profile that actually started off with a sentence that I thought was an incredible way to start this, which was when patients have diseases they can't get diagnosed, they get sent to Wendy Chung. So that tells you a little bit about the impact that Wendy has had. And and then finally, Wendy has helped shape the ethical and policy landscape. So if, if my notes are right, you've served as a plaintiff, I think, in the Supreme Court case that threw out the gene patenting in in the, I think it was 2013 that the case was. And I remember that at the time and it was a really big deal. So hopefully we can cover as much of this as possible in the time that we have. And we'll finish up talking about one of the programs that Wendy's working on right now, which is the Guardian study, looking at whole genome sequencing in a broad population of newborns. So with that very long intro, Wendy, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so one of my favorite things to do with very prolific guests like yourself is to go back in time to the PhD thesis and get a sense of what people were working on early in their career to try to see if I can find a common thread through to today. But so you're you're very well known for your work in neurodevelopment and medical genetics, I think more broadly, but you started focused on type 2 diabetes, looking into, I think, mouse models to understand the genetics. Uh, And then you went on to do your MD, I think, with a focus in pediatrics. So I was curious at the time, what was the career arc that you had in mind? Uh, And then how is that different or similar to where you've ended up today, uh, a little over 20 years later? So I'm going to go back even a little before that, which is to say that when I was in college, I had perhaps an unusual combination of being a biochemistry major as well as an economics major. And as I did that, one of the things that I was fortunate to do was to spend time at the National Institutes of Health. And when I was there, worked on some rare causes of phenylketonuria. So the lab there with Seymour Kaufman was working on a lot of the biochemistry and at the time just starting to get into the genetics, genetics being a tool to understand the biochemistry of tetrahydrobiopterin synthase deficiencies, a cofactor for phenylalanine hydroxylase. And it was during that that I was exposed in terms of the patients. And, and at the hospital at NIH and could clearly see how you need to, to put the pieces together in terms of the patient. And it sounds like a cliche, but really going from the bedside to the bench and back again. That was what really sort of gave me the impetus to become an MD-PhD student at Cornell and Rockefeller. And within that, the year I started was, you can do all the math, but was 1990 was the year the Human Genome Project started. And Seeing what we had done in terms of trying to understand the biochemistry through genetics and then seeing that so much money was going into the Genome Project, and again, this will sound silly, but at the time, people were really, many scientists were questioning sort of the foresight to do this. There was a lot of money going into it and a lot of naysayers thinking this was going to be a waste of time. But, you know, one of the things I learned as an economist and still think about to this day is following the money. And as people are placing their bets in very real ways with large sums of money at the time, I could start to envision what a future state would be like if you actually had the genome. In thinking about this, MD-PhD programs and the long amount of training afterwards is a long time until you graduate and so or actually finish and are ready to practice and really do independent research. And so when people started talking about 
the 20-year plan for the Human Genome Project, that actually didn't daunt me. I thought to myself, well, you know, if you're Wayne Gretzky and you're skating to where that puck is going to be, you know, it's going to take them 20 years. It's going to take me 20 years. We're going to meet exactly uh, 20 years in the future. And I thought to myself, there are not going to be many people who are going to know what to do with that information. And so always, and this is a pearl for any of the trainees out there, you know, thinking about what you can do and being at the cutting edge at the beginning of your career, I think, is always something good to do because no one else knows what they're doing either. So it's not like you have to compete against people who are the best in their fields and you're the youngin coming up. You know, you can all be sort of at that cutting edge learning together. So I was trying to envision what that would be like. And and that was um, an incredible, I've grown up really with the genome, you know, sort of thinking genomics my entire career. And as you were saying, in those early days, was working on mouse models of monogenic forms of obesity, OB and DB, obese and diabetes. And, you know, if you can imagine it in the very early days, we didn't even have thermocyclers for PCR machines. We were, you know, by hand with timers going from buckets of ice to, you know, hot heating blocks and for PCR reactions, you know, still using radioactivity for Sanger sequencing, still using, you know, micro dissections of chromosomes and making yaks and eventually back. So it was laborious. And people originally thought the idea that you could clone a gene for obesity with positional genetics, you know, was laughable. But of course, in retrospect, quite insightful in terms of understanding the biology of leptin and the leptin receptor, which is what we did with those studies. But, you know, with that, as I say, you know, first gene I cloned took me eight years. Last gene I cloned or identified, you know, took eight hours. So just remarkable in terms of how rapidly we can move the science forward now with the tools we do have with the genome. Yeah, definitely. You you gave some great advice there about picking, skating to where the puck is going to be, especially early on in your career, figuring out what the wave is that you can ride or set of waves. How do you think about that either earlier in your career or now? What do you need to do to actually spot what the real shifts are and not, I don't want to disparage crypto, but how do you not get on cryptocurrency and instead get on AI or or the reverse, depending on what you think the next yeah. wave is? Because that's a, it's a, I think it's really important advice, but it's challenging to do. You've got to be good at picking, right? Right. Yeah, you have to have good taste or good foresight or um, be able to predict well. So I do think it's hard for young people, especially because the it depends on what altitude you fly at is the best way I know to say this. So I think people younger in their career tend to be flying at a pretty low altitude. They can see, you know, they can see the trees. It's sometimes hard to see the forest. So you have to spend some time reading, I would argue, to a certain extent, either in news and views, you know, as you're reading things, not just the papers, but reading the more perspective pieces as well. For those are, you know, it's just being sort of a knowledgeable NPR listener as you're reading the New York Times, Science Times, the Wall Street Journal, you know, if you think about it in that dimension. But if you understand the potential ramifications of certain discoveries and what those could be down the future, in the future, you have to put those pieces together. And for that, you have to fly at a pretty high altitude. And so the way I've led my career is trying to think about, if you will, return on investment of, you know, where do I place my bets and what do I spend my time on? I try and think about things that are going to be catalytic and really be able to open up things downstream that are going to be really, you know, that are enabling a lot more things or and there are key blockers in the field. So whether it was patenting of genes, whether it was thinking about diagnostics, whether it's thinking about equitable care and how you can do things at population scale, I really do try and think about things that are going to be maximally impactful and, and hopefully maximally fair and equitable. 
Yeah. One thing I've noticed about you and your career is you you not only are doing great science, but you are really engaged in policy and communication. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and whether that's something that's always been a thread. I think you were in the documentary, The Gene. You participated in uh, helping with the Supreme Court case. Uh, you've, you do a lot of work and not just you know the science itself, but making it have a bigger impact on society. What What is the common thread there? Has that always been something you've done? Or, or did you realize at some point in your career that you needed to do that to have the kind of impact that you wanted to have? So I think I've been just fortunate, and I think it's a talent that I have without being boastful, of just being able to explain things that I understand well in very simple terms, oftentimes using analogies or other things. I think that skill was cultivated for me by taking care of patients. I've always had to explain very complex concepts to patients or parents. And in doing that, I can say in the very early days when I first did this, I wasn't nearly as good at it. I could tell by the quizzical looks I could get on people's faces. And I started to realize someone once told me, you know, think about, Wendy, when you go to talk to your auto mechanic, and I am not at all, you know, a mechanic engineer or a mechanical person. And, you know, they said to me, you know, you could start talking about all the wiring and carburetors and everything else. Would that make sense to you? Or do you just want to know what it takes to get your car out of the garage? And so, you know, that really just sort of brought it home to me. Well, of course, you know, I don't need to be explaining all of the details of how we do all of this. Just think about what's the news you use. And and thinking about that from that very pragmatic point of view, started literally practicing on my family. So over dinner time, you know, we'd always have this thing about, you know, so tell me about your day. And so I'd think about, well, how do I explain my day to my mother-in-law, who's not a scientist? And how do I explain it to my kids who, depending on the time I did this, you know, could have been kindergartners, but, you know, so how do you really do that? And obviously, you know, practice, practice, practice makes makes better. So it was that piece of things. The part on the policy, I, I really had absolutely absolutely no intention of getting into, didn't train in terms of how to do this, but it came out of necessity in the sense that the Supreme Court cases you talked about really was frustration at care I needed for patients and not knowing how to be able to get that care. And it just literally started at one level and organically rose up to eventually being a Supreme Court case. But it was always, I, I have a saying, people know me that know that I say this, it, it starts with a patient, it ends with a patient. For me, it always, everything I've ever done professionally, it starts with one person that I meet that's a patient of mine. They teach me, we learn together, and I think about how to generalize what I learned from one patient and potentially impact millions. But it really always starts with a patient and then always for me has to come back to what does it mean for that patient? Yeah, amazing. I think that's great perspective. I love actually the, the I was going to ask what the MD and the PhD together allow you to do that, you know, the, the MD or the PhD alone. And that point you made actually about the the experience taking these things and explaining them to patients or families is is one crystal clear part of that. What, what else do you think that it gives you from yeah. a perspective? Because it is a big time investment. I actually remember when I was I just did a PhD and I was trying to decide whether I want to do a PhD or MD and ultimately went down the PhD route. I don't know what it would have been like otherwise, but the time was definitely a factor, uh, but it didn't scare you away because you were thinking about when the Human Genome Project was going to end and you had, you had plenty of time. So what else does it allow you to do that a PhD alone wouldn't? So at number one, I'd say that for good, smart people with good intentions, there are many things you can do with either degree and still get to the same point. So either with an MD or a PhD, you can't operate with a PhD, so you're not going to become a neurosurgeon, you know, so there are some limitations in terms of scope of practice. But I will say that I tend not to worry as much about alphabet soup as I do about what the final thing is you're trying to accomplish. So I'll put that out there. I would also say that, you know, it's amazing that 
whatever your formal training is, you need to learn how to learn is the one thing that, you know, I think I, I try and teach learners, trainees, you know, from literally high school all the way up because the world is changing so quickly, the technology, the science, and you really have to think about how to critically evaluate the evidence and the data and be able to be thoughtful. So it's those types of skills as much as the facts themselves that you're learning. Within this, though, I do think the MD, it's this altitude again. The MD has given me the perspective of being able to see at a very high level systems of care, everything from payment and, you know, who the payers are and how they're motivated and why that impacts things from a public health point of view, from a global health point of view that we've had recently with the pandemic. I mean, it really gives me that very high level perspective. And to a certain extent, I know a language of medical ease. The PhD really helps me, has helped me, I think, and and I'm sorry that I didn't get more of this in medical school, but really helped me learn the analysis process. So how you analyze data, not just how you generate data, but how you analyze the data, how you're rigorous, how you be able to speak the languages of science, being able to understand in detail some of the new technologies. I'm not an expert in every technology. And I think one of the things the MD taught me was you, you have to know your limits and you have to know when to phone a friend. You know, you have to, had to get a consult medically and how to get a consult in terms of research or, right. or what you're doing on your PhD. So within all of these, I think it's possible to learn either way, but I think science in a good way has become much more collaborative. And I do think you need to learn to speak multiple languages, whether in science or medicine or policy. In doing this, you have to, there, there are a lot of jargon that we use, which is unfortunate, but I think you have to be able to learn the jargon and you have to be able to speak in a credible way for people to accept you into the conversation. So whichever way you do it, some of the skills you learn with either or both of those. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I was I was interested to go a little bit into your autism and neurodevelopment work that you spent and, and are still doing a lot of great work in that area. In 2014, you gave a TED Talk, I think, that the the title of which was what we know about autism and, and what we don't know. I was wondering if you could maybe paint a picture of what we knew in the mid-2010s and what we know now. What's what's changed in that time and, and also what hasn't changed? What are the problems that you're still trying to uncover or understand? So autism is a complicated condition, and it's, I mean, it is called a spectrum because it is such a wide spectrum from individuals who are nonverbal and self-injurious and can have epilepsy and other comorbidities, you know, one end of that spectrum, to individuals who are incredibly talented, but they see the world, they feel the world, they experience the world in a different way, and because of that can have challenges in certain dimensions, but yet can also be exceptional in certain dimensions as well. And there's everything between those in the middle. And uh, it's scientifically, I, I really don't like it in the sense that we give, we use one term to, to talk about everyone along that spectrum. And it becomes very challenging for parents, for individuals in terms of self-identity to know who they are and how they fit into that ecosystem and to be able to think about then how to bring out the best in individuals, knowing that there are different answers and there are different underlying reasons why their brain works differently in that way. So that's fundamentally what the challenge of that is. We've certainly and of course, I'm a geneticist, certainly use genetics as a dimension to try and get greater homogeneity, largely initially for the reproducibility issue. I do think we're at the point where we have much greater homogeneity in 2014. We knew that genetics was a big factor. We knew some of the genes. We know now know many, many more of the genes and realizing that the genetic architecture is quite complicated perhaps not surprisingly, both de novo genetic events with large effect and oftentimes associated with neurodevelopmental intellectual disabilities and, and 
other limitations in that part of the spectrum to inherited rare variants to common variants. And within this, for any one person, they're, they're the sum of their genome. So all portions of that can contribute, but also importantly, factors like prematurity, other exposures, infectious exposures, for instance, and either during fetal development or early life development. So it's very complicated. And we don't have a single, I can't do a single blood test and say this newborn's going to have autism. It's just not the way that works in terms of the way the brain works. I do, though, have much more hope in terms of being able to support individuals with autism. I think technologies are emerging incredibly rapidly and using those to support individuals and help even things out to appreciate where they have challenges where they need greater supports and be able to use those technologies to support them in those domains towards greater independence, greater integration, just greater joy in life in terms of being able to be their best selves and to be able to be fulfilled. I think that's where I see, and this will sound sacrilegious as a geneticist to say this, but I think in the near term, that's actually our greatest hope in terms of making progress initially. Longer term, I think there's a lot of excitement about potentially for the what I consider really devastating monogenic causes for individuals that truly are individuals who either have life-limiting degenerative conditions associated with autism, severe epilepsy associated with autism, for those types of very, very severe impactful conditions. I do have hope that at some point, whether it's gene therapy, gene editing, gene manipulation, as we figure out delivery of these types of um, strategies to the brain, I do think within my lifetime, hope I still have a long left lifetime ahead, but within my lifetime, you know, we will have those solutions. So that that's part of the excitement to me as I think about the future for individuals. Yeah, I wanted to dive into the more severe end of the neurodevelopmental disease spectrum where, where you're talking about here. Longtime listeners will know that I did my PhD in, in this kind of world as well. And I'm curious whether how you're thinking about the state of therapeutics within this population. So to set up the challenge a little bit, we've got probably, you can, you'll know the numbers better than me, but thousands of rare and ultra rare diseases, all of which have different genetic mechanisms to unpick. Some are gain of function, some are loss of function. But at the same time, we have this emerging toolkit of gene therapies, gene editing, and also just a better understanding of biology that might help us deploy small molecules or biologics or, or enzymes and other simpler things. I'm, I'm wondering where you think the biggest opportunities are, you know, again, in this group of people where autism is one part of a, of a very complex syndrome. We're not talking about, you know, the more autism in the, in the more general population that isn't associated with neurodevelopment and, and intellectual disabilities. Sure. So again, and I, I want to be very clear as I'm saying this, I'm not saying that everyone with autism needs treatment. Uh, as you correctly framed this, I do think there's a subset of individuals who really have significant challenges. As I think about this, to your point, it starts with the diagnosis. So it starts with the recognition and in some cases in the right period of time. Time is critical for certain of these conditions where there can be damage to the brain over time, either by seizures or neurodegeneration. And so there's an element of getting the timing right. So I do think a lot about scalability for widespread whatever it is that we do in terms of the diagnosis. And I'm I'm saying here not just about the autism behavioral diagnosis, but the underlying molecular genetic diagnosis and making sure that you know what it is you're aiming at, what that target is. So doing that at scale is the first part of the issue. We can talk about it later, but whether it's newborn screening, whether it's even prenatal screening in some cases where it's going to be necessary, but doing this and doing this on scale so that we don't leave 
anyone behind. No one um, sort of loses that opportunity, I think, or the it, it's just preparing you for which way, race you're going to run. I think of it as lining up to run your race and you have to figure out, you know, are you over here or are you over here? And you got to get that right. So that's the first part of this. Assuming we can do this and do this on scale, the next question becomes, how do you get to the brain? Just literally a delivery question in terms of whatever it is you're going to deliver, do you just literally, I mean, it sounds barbaric, but do you drill a hole in the skull and you squirt it in the brain? Or are there other ways you're going to, in a more sort of uh, nuanced and elegant way, have ways to deliver to certain cell types to be able to get through the blood-brain barrier if you're delivering it peripherally? But I think delivery is a general module, is what I'm going to say in terms of getting in. And in many cases, it, it doesn't matter what you're trying to get in, you're going to have to be able to get in. So there are lots of folks working on those systems. I don't think there's yet a perfect solution in terms of that. I do think in a good way, though, that's an enabler. So again, if we talk about sort of bottlenecks within the system, that's a key bottleneck and a key enabler to many, many technologies, many ways of being able to do this. Beyond that, I think there are some early strategies now. So everything from, and some may have seen what I've done with in a very, very small scale with ASOs and being able so those are things that I think can scale. They do have to be in some cases either one by one or a few by a few, but we don't have easy ways of being able to do that for hundreds of thousands of people for many conditions. So it is, is still a little bit bespoke and, and pretty intensive to get it to work. But I do think we've got some early evidence that that can work, but it's very cumbersome and for better or for worse requires repeated treatments. It's not a one and done strategy. So within that, and it doesn't work for all conditions and it, it can have very severe consequences when it goes awry. So just to, to be very careful in terms of this is still experimental and it's not perfect. But I think of that as a bridge to some of the more permanent things, which really are more one and done types of treatment. And so I'll throw out SMA as an example. It's not autism. Let me be very clear about that. But in the same way that we've, you know, did we did newborn screening for uh, SMA to be able to, again, diagnose people at scale at a time when we could, used ASO as our first treatment for that, then came in with gene therapy as a one and done strategy with that. It's sort of taking that, again, sort of playbook, if you will, from aut for autism and seeing what we can do in those ways. In some, and I'm speaking very technical because I know the listeners are quite savvy, there are some ways where we can just do gene addition. Pretty simple. You've got a loss of function. You're not worried in terms of being able to get copy number just right. You can overshoot. You know, you've got a wide range in terms of therapeutic window. And so you just sort of shoot it in. You may or may not have to get every single cell at saturation. It depends on whether it's cell autonomous, whether you need every single cell or just a certain number of cells. So there are variations on the theme on what this works for. But those are some of the easy, quick wins, I think, that we've got as a field. Other things are much more nuanced. You've got mutations that cause haploinsufficiency. And if you over overshoot, if you've got a duplication, for instance, maybe associated with another problem. And so you've got a very narrow therapeutic window and you've got to get it just right. Other things where you've got to get it in every single cell because it's something that affects networks. And if you short circuit the network, you're going to have a problem. And so those get to be greater and greater challenges in terms of how you do this. And at some point, one would hope that there's a one-size-fits-all solution in form of gene editing, where you could literally sort of go in a race and, and type in or correct what the variant is. And in some ways, that's elegant, or I shouldn't say elegant, it's, it's somewhat brute force, but it's being able to do whether it's loss of function, gain of function, change of function. You don't know the mechanism yes. as long as you know the that you've got the right nucleotide or nucleotides. 
just fix it. Uh, and again, going back to my mechanic uh, sort of analogy, in many ways that like individuals that have something in their family or themselves, like that's what they're looking for. Make it simple, just fix it. And so you can imagine at some point at scale, if you have modules in terms of delivery and you just pop in the new gene, the new variant, that does become incredibly scalable very quickly. Again, that's a future state. I'm not claiming that that's possible now, but I'm excited to see that for sickle cell disease, this is one, I think it's going to be a very big first test case for us in terms of being able to do these genetic therapies now at scale. And now that we're approved both in the United States as well as in the UK to be able to go forward with this, you know, I, I really hope for the future that we do this well and so that we make sure that we don't leave people behind in accessing these treatments. Yes, absolutely. And if people do want to hear a little bit more about that particular story, we did cover it briefly in episode 114, uh, which was our roundup with Dr. Vera Rajagopal of the biggest stories of 2023. And that was, at least from my perspective and his, probably, probably the biggest, both from a patient benefit standpoint, but also I think it's the first example of a GWAS hit translating all the way through to a therapeutic, which is which is pretty cool 20 years or so later. I was wondering if we could actually pick up on the newborn screening in the SMA thread a little bit. Maybe you could talk through, you've done a lot of work with newborn screening that you mentioned in PKU, but then later on in your career in, in SMA, which, which is spinal muscular atrophy for, for people who haven't picked up on the acronym. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you learned from the research you've done there. And you've also seen, I think, upfront the transition from Biogen, Spinraza, which was, I think, the ASO therapy you mentioned. And then in a couple of years ago, I think in 2021, Novartis's Zolgensma, which was the, the one-time, very expensive, but very effective cure. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you learned through that. And, and then we'll move on to the Guardian study. And, and I'd like to just think about how SMA is could may, may or may not be a blueprint for many of the other diseases that we're looking at, because there probably are a lot of similarities, but also differences that you've mentioned as well, depending on the mechanism. Sure. So spinal muscular atrophy is, I grew up in my time, lifetime, just being, I, I would say I got to know many of the families and just devastating to me because the babies with type 1 SMA essentially have about 12 months in terms of lifespan, sometimes a little bit longer if we put them on ventilators. But they're babies that start out normal and, and quickly degenerate in terms of loss of the motor neurons. And within the Pediatric Neuromuscular Clinical Research Network, we've done work for a decade in terms of very carefully understanding the natural history, the sort of one-way street is the way I think of it in terms of the loss of those, those lower motor neurons. And within that, it just became clear to me that any effective treatment would really have to be very early. It's an autosomal recessive condition. It's without any intervention would have a birth prevalence of about 1 in 10,000. So it's rare, but not ultra rare and relatively equal opportunity. By, and by that, I mean around the world, various different racial, ethnic, ancestral groups about the same carrier frequency, slight differences. And the beauty of it, and this is unique to this, or maybe not unique, but important to this, is that there's one important mutation that accounts for about 95% of mutations. So relatively easy to do, not just uh, complicated sequencing interpretation, interpretation, but really genotyping essentially with an assay that you could do at scale. 
So within this, all of these things being put together, I'd been thinking for a while about, and again, because it's recessive and at the time most people weren't going through carrier screening for this, you wouldn't know about this for most individuals until your child were symptomatic and there's oftentimes a delay to diagnosis. So the babies were not diagnosed until they were usually about six months of age and again, dying usually within the next six months for type 1 babies. So the usual paradigm of wait till they get to us and then try something in terms of a uh, treatment, I worried very much that clinical trials were going to be a failure or at least had a high risk of failure simply because we were getting in too late and, and we had already passed a point of irreversibility. So in thinking about this, again, had grown up with as newborn screening for PKU and other inborn errors of metabolism and just put it out there and said, well, you know what, the gene, you could do this on scale. You know, we did the technical portion of it, use the dried blood spot extract the DNA, do a high throughput assay, which we eventually got down to 21 cents per baby, but do it and, you know, offer everyone the opportunity so that we don't leave anyone behind. So we started that in 2016 in New York City in very close collaboration with the New York State Department of Health. And just a shout out, I think it's been important to include the public health system within this to really minimize the burden on families and maximize the equity. And it was incredibly successful in the sense that the assay worked. It was reliable, robust. We could identify babies who were, there's a nuance here, but you can predict the severity, whether it's type one, the most severe, type two, or type three by looking at the SMN2 copy numbers. So you have a mutation in SMN1, but you can compensate a little bit with SMN protein can come from SMN2. And so we would use that to try and predict severity and help parents try and make decisions about coming into the clinical trial. It was timed exactly and precisely and very strategically to be able to offer the treatment of the clinical trials without overreaching and overpromising to say that these for sure would work, but to know that we had nothing else and that the disease was otherwise fatal. And that combination of thinking about that had an extremely high uptake rate. So we had, depending on the day in the hospital, 92, 93% uptake rate. Essentially, most people, as long as they didn't you know, sort of not want to participate in research. Almost everyone participated. We could do this within the time frame of regular newborn screening. So it was very, very fast in terms of doing this. So within, for instance, literally days of birth, a baby could be screened, confirmed with the diagnosis and start the treatment. And that was exactly what we needed to do for maximal efficacy. It was just the, I, I don't know in medical history, to be honest, of anything that has gone through the implementation phase as rapidly as it did. Again, 2016 is the timing timestamp, started newborn screening in clinical trials and very quickly went to, and those of people who know about the Secretary's Advisory Committee will appreciate this, but putting together a package for national then nomination for that to be added to national newborn screening and that because of this reciprocal, having a screen, being able to power the clinical trials, having it approved being able to use that to then say, now we've got an FDA-approved treatment, so now we have a reason to do newborn screening, getting newborn screening approved, powering that for other clinical trials and other treatments. It's just been this very, very rapid succession of synergistic advancement for the field that it's been remarkable. Now, every baby in the United States being screened, many babies around the world, three FDA-approved treatments, completely transformed. And, and I, I would love to put myself out of business and retire, but the type of thing where you see these remarkable advances, we've seen it with SMA, we've seen it for cystic fibrosis, and hopefully these are sort of the canaries in the coal mine now for sickle cell disease and other things coming forward. But 
as you pointed out, not everything is going to be that easy or that cheap because the genetics are more complicated. The treatments may not be as effective. So I don't want to say that, you know, it's going to work perfectly for everyone instantaneously, but one can imagine how there are other applications that will work. Yeah. And, and I want to I wanna really go into this because maybe you could first talk about the Guardian study. We've been talking about a lot. It's a very ambitious and I think Again, amazingly timed screening program. So you're doing whole genome sequencing. You're looking, I think, at 250 conditions. And I'd love to talk a little bit about the selection of those. You, like other programs, I'm familiar with the Genomics England program, have done a really careful job determining which conditions and genes you are going to report on and which ones you aren't, because there are serious ethical considerations here. I'd love also to just talk about how whole genome sequencing gets paid for by the healthcare system, because I've had a lot of conversations and perspectives on this podcast where people tend to agree that we're close to or past a tipping point where it makes sense to pay for at least exome sequencing, but maybe whole genome sequencing for everyone in the healthcare system. But the problem is we don't know how to pay for it because the impact is so spread across specialties, across diseases, and newborn screening may be the the wedge in, but you're going to have the case where a small fraction of babies and families benefit dramatically but others may not benefit until they're 18 years old or or 50 years old or 75 years old when the genes that they carry become clinically actionable in some way. So I'd love to talk maybe a little bit about Guardian and the focus there, but then we can turn to this question of, I'd love your perspective having done a ton of work in this area of, are we at that point where it's cost-effective, but it's uh, a matter of figuring out how to get it paid for, or or is there more nuance to that particular question? Sure. So in when we started the spinal muscular atrophy newborn screening, we had, and we did this quite intentionally, we asked participating parents whether they'd be willing to continue the journey with us and be available to help us plan additional newborn screening prototypes. And within that then started essentially the planning, even within 2016, to think about what's next. We did do a what's next for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, another condition, a different strategy. I won't go into that in detail, but that's been successfully completed, not yet adopted nationally for newborn screening, but new treatments available for DMD or Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So that that's advancing but more slowly. The ultimate within this, and I have to admit this was in part because I'm, as you can imagine, and you can do the math to figure out how old I am, getting more gray hair, getting older, and realizing that I can't do these one by one, knowing that we've already got over 7,000 monogenic conditions. Not, I'm not saying all should be on newborn screening, but just knowing that there are many conditions. And we just couldn't do it one by one. I had to think about these catalytic events or things that were throttling the system and how to be able to have platforms now to move it forward. Then I'd lived through the area where we brought in tandem mass spectrometry for inborn errors of metabolism for newborn screening. So I knew about the idea of platforms and how we could use platform based strategies to adopt sort of blocks of conditions and started thinking about that, as did others. I want to be very clear. I think this was originally envisioned way back as people thought about the genome project in general as a use case, but started thinking about how to operationalize that and thinking about a lot of the ethical issues, because as you'd mentioned, I actually do as I plan every single study and experiment, think about the LC issues within this and thinking about what's appropriate. 
So within this, started talking with families initially more casually and then more systematically in terms of having advisory councils and family members or or parents of children with these genetic conditions literally embedded within our teams, helping us think through this. And, And the idea being the following, one could use genome sequencing or some other platform for genomics and knowing that we're not at steady state for what should be part of these, intentionally use something very broad to allow the flexibility of popping things in and out as time went on and and we got more data. It's just, I've been through and worked in clinical laboratories and I know what it takes to do validation of a new assay. And again, I just could not stand the back and forth of needing to validate a new assay. So this is kind of a one size fits all, but you filter and don't look at the rest of the data that you're not using, just filter informatically to what you need. So that was the premise. We talked to parents who at the end of the day, said, we want conditions that will affect a child less than five years of age to start early life. It doesn't have to be as a newborn, but early life. And we want to be fairly certain of this. And we've operationalized with their input to 90% penetrance and focusing on 90% penetrance by five years of age was something you can do. Now, the twist that we have in Guardian, and I will say this is part of what we're I I very intentionally did not know the answer, and I still don't know the answer, about an optional module within Guardian, which is related to conditions that are related to epilepsy and other neurodevelopmental conditions and relates to some of my experience that we've talked about already. There are a certain group of parents, actually the majority, but not all of them, who said, I really want to be empowered, is the word they use, to be able to help my child be the best version of themselves. So as long as you can tell me for sure that my child is going to have these problems, I want to use these critical windows of development where we may be able to help support my child either because you can treat seizures, you can prevent that damage to the brain by repeated seizures that may go unrecognized. We can help in terms of other things. And as treatments become available, we want to be lined up and at the ready for those. And so it's been interesting in Guardian to see, do do people want that or not? Are they satisfied with it? Are there What ways can we continue to iteratively improve? And I will say, not a day goes by that I don't realize there's something we can do slightly yeah. differently. And even though we've been doing this for a little over a year in a good way, I, I will admit there are things that we didn't have in version 1.0 of the gene list that we have in version 2.0 of the gene list that'll actually roll out in early 2024. There are not many, but a few things we had on version one that when we've got deep into it, we realize we shouldn't be having in there. We've learned from population genetics of things that the community thought were pathogenic that are truly not pathogenic and we need to iterate and revise. And and so we get we get better and, yeah. and we fully and always intended to do that. What are some of the examples of ones where you've had uh, to revise, revise backwards and actually yeah. not as pathogenic or as penetrant as you thought? Yeah. So I'd say this is much more at the level of the allele or the variant rather than the gene. And I think that's because we and others really worked very, very hard to make sure the gene list was an appropriate gene list. But I'll just give you one example that happened immediately to us with cystic fibrosis. So we we do the sequencing and, you know, we're looking at CFTR and we saw two variants. And just to be very explicit, this is short read genome sequencing, but it's short read. So we usually don't know phase as we're doing this. And for a recessive condition with CFTR, we didn't know phase, but we would see these two variants. And at the beginning, 
one clearly looked pathogenic uh, or was classified in terms of ACMG guidelines as being pathogenic. The other one had been classified as likely pathogenic. We saw two. We didn't know the phase. So we assume, you know, sort of by our rules in terms of doing this, this would be something we'd report out. So we started reporting this out. And very, very quickly, we started seeing not just one, but two, but three. We got up to 11 in the very early days of doing this. And it was like, hold the horses. You know, there's something cystic fibrosis is not that common in this community. What's going on? And, you know, at the same time, we were testing the parents, we were getting phasing, we were looking in terms of the other immunoreactive trypsinogen as another way of confirming the diagnosis. And it was very clear that these two variants are in cis in this community. We could phase them, we could look in terms of the haplotype, understand the population genetics. And these we now never report out as two different variants. We know the phase, we know how to interpret them. And so those false positives or something now that we just don't have to bother the families with, and it decreases the burden on the study, and most importantly, on the parents in terms of reporting those false positives out. Yeah, it's a great example. I think it points to a more general theme in population genomics as well, which is that a lot of the penetrance estimates seem to be getting revised systematically down because you've got population genomics, you know, biobanks like the UK Biobank, for example, where there's a known ascertainment bias. There are a lot of genes or variants that just aren't going to make it into that population because of the way it was ascertained. And then you have ClinVar and other databases that are in the opposite direction where you're only ascertaining for people who have the disease. And so when we start to run these truly populate, like you're, you're asking everybody, I think, that comes through the hospital whether they'd like to take part. And there's some still some selection bias, but a lot less than maybe something like the UK Biobank where people have to more proactively opt in than just uh, sign a sign a form in the hospital and and get their baby checked. So you'll probably see that with a lot of things, right? That will clarify the penetrance data in ways that many other data sets is probably statistically difficult to pull out, right? Right. And I'll just say we've been doing Guardian now, we're about 15 months in and we've screened about 8,000 babies so far. So we're still, you know, early days in this, but, you know, it's not two or three. And the wonderful thing about it is it's based in New York City, which is an extremely diverse community in a good way. And we check this literally every single week. I had my check in with the numbers this morning. We have an uptake rate that runs 72, 73 percent. So it's not everyone. But again, I think that's appropriate that people are being thoughtful. But when we look across our hospitals, when we look by self-reported race, ethnicity, when we look across different neighborhoods, different sort of ones that may have from a social determinants of health point of view, less access to care and resources by we look at insurance type, really in a good way, everyone, it's very equitable. It really is even across the board. So generally people are, not universally, but very similarly taking us up. So I do think it's going to be a representative data set to be able to say how generalizable is what we're seeing. And just to give you a sense, we're about a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, a quarter. That is white, black, Latina, Asian, and other. So it's a very, very heterogeneous, almost worldwide melting pot that we've got in New York City. Yeah, that is New York City. Amazing. What What is the percentage roughly of actionable case, cases that you're getting? I'm curious yeah. in the, the just rough order of magnitude. I don't know if you've run yeah. the numbers or uh, published it yet. Yeah, so we definitely have run the numbers. Uh, For round numbers, we're running about 3% positive, screen positive that are running out. And of those, about 75% that are true positive. So we do have some false positives. It's also possible that we've missed something, but we compare against regular newborn screening, traditional newborn screening, and guardian. And so far, to our knowledge, we we, we are concordant. That is, we haven't missed anything that should have been picked up. We actually also have things, though, that we pick up on guardian that traditional 
newborn screening did not pick up. And so, for instance, even though we run a TREK assay to pick up severe combined immunodeficiency on traditional newborn screening, we ended up identifying by sequencing a baby that has, some people will call it leaky skid, but sort of subclinical and and doesn't get picked up on TREK. But you can easily see when you start doing the immunological workup, clearly this little this baby boy was affected. In fact, he's now gone on to a bone marrow transplant uh, for curative uh, treatment. To your point, though, some of the uh, a- actions that are taken are not that extreme. In fact, that is, has been our most extreme intervention. Uh, we certainly have had babies detected with long QT syndrome, where it's a combination of just avoiding medications that further prolong the QT. We're using a beta blocker, um, something relatively inexpensive, well-tolerated, but, you know, is taking a medicine to our most common condition that we report out as G6PD deficiency, which, you know, really the intervention is just to avoid certain things, avoid fava beans, not that most babies are eating fava beans yet, but eventually, and then certain medications that can cause the hemolytic anemia. And that can that's our most common condition. And again, within our population, based on the ancestry is very, very common. And so something that the New York State regulations want us to be screening for anyway, but we knew that the method that was being used in the state really had only detected one baby out of approximately 100 that we ultimately screened positive. So much better screening that we're doing now in Guardian. Yeah. And I'm I'm conscious of our time here. I have one more question that I'd love to just close out on, which is this question about how do we get to universal whole genome sequencing that the healthcare system can responsibly pay for? What does that look like? Is it newborn screening? Is it a combo of newborns and adults? What what does that look like to you? So it's a great question. All of this is dependent on the cost of sequencing. I will say right now, it is the most expensive part of Guardian is the sequencing. Uh, you know, right now, I don't know, and different people are trying different things. We're trying genomes. Others are trying exomes. Others tr- are trying targeted gene panels. I think in these early days where I'm trying to future-proof it, that's why we made the strategic decision to use genomes. The cost of genome sequencing is decreasing. Lots of technologies now to be able to do this, and I'm not saying what it has to be in the future. I do hope we get to the point of driving down the cost so that it can be affordable within the context of a public health system for newborns. I I personally think that as you do the projections out, that's where it's from an equity point of view, most important to do it from a logistical point of view. That's the way to not leave anyone behind because everyone doesn't enter the health system in the same way after that. And you just yeah. have leakage in the system. And it's just challenging comparing the UK to the US in terms of single payers. You know, who ultimately pays? Is it insurance? Is it the state? Is it the federal government? So we won't have time to go into all of those nuances. But it's complicated if your insurance, if your insurance turns over every two to three years. Years, it's sort of who gets you at birth may not be who gets you when you go to kindergarten. And so right. it's complicated in terms of thinking about that. And, you know, if it's put on the state, there are some states that have money and some states that don't have money. And so it becomes, a, like I said, a more complicated discussion. But ultimately, we need to have the data behind making sure that this is actually feasible and that it's doing good things for those children from a health outcomes. But we are collecting, as are many others, both outcome data as well as health economics. The challenging part is even just knowing what it costs to take care of that same child standard of care right now. I'll tell you, I don't have a perfect way of doing that because 
I fear, and we are starting to see proof, many of those children are dying undiagnosed. And so, you know, you can't even put a cost on what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And I don't know how to fill those data gaps. But it is an exciting opportunity. And again, to bring sort of my economics back into the picture in terms of being able to put the science uh, together with the policy. Yeah, I actually almost did economics. I ended up doing math and biology, mainly because I did a microeconomics class that was so I, the the instructor just was, it wasn't working for me. So I ended up doing math instead, but I was very nearly on the same path as you. I'll tell you my last fun fact. I was extremely good in math. And when I was an undergraduate, I asked my math professor what I could do with a math degree. And he told me I could work for an insurance company and be an actuarial. And that was the only reason I didn't add math as a major. And anyway, it was just to tell you what what career advice you can get that steers you in a different direction. I had the exact opposite. I had a physics professor who told me that if I did math, I could do anything. And if I did economics, I'd be pushing paper around all day. That was his opinion, obviously not mine. But I think the real thing is do what you love, do something that gives you transferable skills. And like you said, learn how to learn. That's the most important thing of all. Wendy, thank you so much. This was amazing. I was uh, really looking forward to it and you absolutely did not disappoint. I learned so much. Thank you for uh, the time today and also for the great work that you do, the impact on patients, families, and on the field has just been incredible. Well, thanks for helping us communicate this out. Uh, I'm really glad that people are listening in and learning and hopefully can help come up with the solutions. Absolutely. And thanks everyone, as always, for listening and we will see you next time. Take care.